Welcome to the Motorsports in Focus podcast. I'm your host, David Santiago, joined by my co-host and producer, Joe McKinney. Hope you enjoy. All right, and we're back again. And uh, after, well, I guess it wasn't a brief hiatus because I threw out the uh, Pikes Peak podcast. As far as the listeners are concerned, it's not. No. But uh, Joe was out last week. I was. He had a, a nasty flu. Yes, which stomach I, flu. Yeah, yeah, which I just heard about, and it did not sound fun. Yeah. We'll spare you the details. Yes, yes. <laughs> you don't want to know. Um, but glad he's feeling better, back on the podcast, and uh, we actually have a lot to talk about, and by a lot, I mean mostly Lamal. Yeah, yeah. So We have three races since we've uh, since we've previously done a podcast, so. Yeah, well, we're going to start with uh, Indy, and then we'll talk about Formula One a little bit. We'll just kind of go over them real quick. Um, but I think the main focus is definitely going to be Lamal yeah. because it's Lamal. It is Lamal. So, all right. So Indy, uh, what were your thoughts on the race overall? I at, actually thought uh, it was pretty good. It yeah. was at Road America. Great um, track. Yeah. It immediately, like three, four, five laps in, whatever it was, you just, I I don't know about you watching it. I, I sat back and went, they have to be here every year. Yeah, and these are the types of circuits that IndyCar needs to be at. Like, it just made me go, God, there are way too many good American circuits like this that Indy needs to be at. Like, why are we not at VIR this this year? Are they really not? No, that's why is that not a thing? Yeah, why are you not at Sonoma? You know, there's just there's far too many good circuits that are like this, where it's just a proper good American road course, lots of undulation. Lots of good corners, high speed, low speed, different kinds of tests all over the place. Just, yes, it was so good. And it's perfect for IndyCar, too, because there's always something going on Yeah, in IndyCar. Yep. And I definitely felt where we've had so many street circuits in Indy that when I saw the first couple apps, I was like, ah, yes, a racetrack. Yeah. <laughs> this is nice. Yeah. <laughs> what, a, what a great concept. Absolutely. Yes. <laughs> Yeah, it, it, it is a significant difference when they go from a very, very tight street circuit like Detroit this past time, which I overall did not enjoy very much. Like, it was a good enough race. Fine. It was IndyCar. It was pretty fun to watch. But yeah. watching this, just you immediately go, yeah, yep, yep, yep. They got to be here. Do this again. <laughs> Do this all of the time because this is better. Yeah. There was a lot of, uh, I mean, it's IndyCar, so there's a lot of action everywhere. Um, but there was a lot of uh, sketchy moments, too. Uh, people going off in areas that were pretty high speed, but saved it. And yes, the one that comes to mind is uh, oh man, who was it? It was uh, Will Power. Yes, when he went off in the kink. Yes, Whew. yes, and caught the, the. So there is a good size bump on the inside of that kink too, and he caught all of it and somehow held that together. Yeah, he, that was a great bit of driving to not lose it completely because I I think a rookie probably does. Oh yeah. And, I mean, but I feel like we end up talking about the same themes, which I guess is good because there's probably some truth to them. But whenever you watch an IndyCar race, it's just like, okay, there's a lot going on here. There's people going off. There's people making moves. All sorts of stuff happening. You have no idea who's going to win. And that just seems to be every week with IndyCar. Yeah. Which is a stark contrast to F1, which we'll get to later. But um, it's just... I don't know. I think it's pretty good. The one thing, <laughs> I have a small gripe, and this is a random tangent of sorts, but like, I have to say, one thing, I wish they would just stick with the same livery for the most part. 
Yeah. Do you find that you're like, wait, where's? Oh, it's that card. No, it's it's blue now. It used to be yellow, but now it's blue. Last week it was black, I think. Yeah. You know, you're like, can we just stick with the yeah. same colors? Scott Dixon does always have the same livery, so he commits to it. Yes. yes. Um, <laughs> and the Arrow McLarens do appear to have the same livery every time. But yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you. Yeah, there's there's quite a few um, individuals that swap out their liveries a bit too often, and you're just, if you're slightly more than a casual fan, enough to know the names, and but not necessarily know the sponsorships, Yeah. Uh, you, you see a new car come in and you're like, wait, what? What? Right. They also swap out drivers. I mean, like, you, uh, all of a sudden, not not necessarily swap out, but they just swap in drivers. So I guess by proxy, you have to swap a driver out. But, uh, like, Ryan hunter Ray was back in this race. Yeah. It's just, what? Why? I mean, <laughs> cool. I like Ryan hunter Ray. That's great. But why is he here? And he's in a bit Nile. Like, what? Yeah, I, I do find that a little bit confusing. Maybe it's just because I'm used to, like, the classical structure of, like, team and drivers generally sticking together yes and so like when you take that away you're just like ah well wait i thought that car was that car last okay it's like right and i'm sure once i get watch well, indy more it won't be so much of a problem but. yeah and the thing is like some teams are very obviously teams like all the aero mclaren cars yeah they're very clearly teams and then you have other other teammates like i, I want to say it was polo and his teammate is uh, I can't remember his first name, Anderson. He was in the dark green car this week. And it's like, how, what? They are on polar opposite parts of the, the racetrack. Like, yeah, exactly. they're not even close. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it is a little odd. But, um, yeah, I thought overall it was a pretty good race. The one thing I think I want to, like, not to bring in drama to the podcast or to, to change the topic, but something I wanted to pick your brain on. Um, there was a incident, and I use that term loosely, um, between Christian Lundgaard and Joseph Newgarden. Uh, on the corner coming off of the second straight, mm-hmm. uh, before you go uphill, right, for that little tiny uphill. Yep. You know where we're And then the left-hander and then under the bridge, left-hander. Yep. Yeah. yeah. So you have the... You, you've taken turn one. Yep. And now you're headed down that big, long straight. Yep. That left-hander there. Okay. Exiting that yeah, straight, yeah, right? Yeah. Lundgaard was on the outside and maybe just behind Newgarden, uh, but Newgarden just decided to use all of the track as if he was the only driver on the circuit. Yeah, and Indy decided that that was fine. And I don't know about you, man, but I I saw that, and I'm a I am a Newgarden fan. I like Newgarden. That deserved a penalty. I don't know what the hell that was. That's not racing. Like I get that that I, I get that Lundgaard had put his car in a bold position to try and make the corner, but if you're Newgarden, you do have to still give that driver enough space. He you he's no longer in your mirrors. You can see his car if you look right. Yeah, I remember that move, and I feel like there were actually a couple moves like that. During there was the race. there was that was the most egregious one though. Yeah, and I I tend to agree with you. I think it comes back to this like classic argument it within racing of like if uh if somebody is on the inside at the apex, that somehow means that they have the corner, which we talked about this a couple episodes, yeah, ago. exactly. I think it's something that comes up all the time because it's like really hard to actually pin down because I think it's probably because it's contextual. It's like you can't just have it as a rule. It depends on other factors, of course, and I think it just comes down to. 
what the series is willing to tolerate and, you know, the actual fashion with which it happens. Like, if somebody just goes deep into a corner and they run wide, that's like, okay, he didn't push him off the track. But then when you see stuff like that where you're like, okay, he could have left room. Yeah. You know, he yeah, could were... have done that. Right. My 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 way of thinking about it, and, you know, this is this is me who has not done any sort of professional driving whatsoever, right? The way I see it is it, if you were in that situation, but on the other side. So if the roles were flipped, now Lundgaard's on the inside and Newgarden's the one on the outside. And Lundgaard does that to Newgarden. Is Newgarden now yelling back at his team going, what the hell was that? Absolutely. Because if he is, then that's a wrong move, mm-hmm. no matter what. Because that, that, what that tells me is that drivers agree that can't happen. Like, that's not acceptable. And that's that's the way I, I – like, I, I agree with good hard racing, but – Newgarden wasn't even inside the white lines. He yeah, <laughs> he exceeded yeah. the track limits to move Lundgaard all the way off the track. It's a really interesting problem because I think you see it, again, in all of motorsports. You see it in Formula One, whatever it is. But sometimes, and I, I don't know if it's experience, I think you see it more often with the younger drivers, and I think this is also a theme with Max Verstappen, especially exactly what you just said. When Max is the person making the pass, everything's fair game. Yep. When Max is the one being pushed off the track, he's incredibly upset about it. He is, yeah. And I think it's it's exactly what you said. It's like, okay, if you would be upset at that, it was not a good move. And uh, I think absolutely was the case here. But I also thought it was funny because the announcers um, were also kind of – there were a couple moves that I saw. They were like, oh, I expect a penalty for that, penalty for that, penalty for that. I'm like, whoa past like couple races there's been like no penalties and everybody's like that's good clean racing right and now all of a sudden they're like oh that's going to be a penalty that's well, going to be a penalty it's like what and it's what not happened? and it's not like the announcers are are joe schmoes either like townsend bell is a good great driver oh, yeah. like this is not a guy that ha- doesn't have any idea what's going on and even he like he had said that he thought the new garden move was fine and then there was another move i can't remember what it was offhand but he had mentioned another move that he thought deserved a penalty and i i looked at that and went where yeah, like there what? was one at the start of the race where I think it was a ward uh, clipped somebody down the straightaway, that, uh, that yes. straightaway yeah. leading into yep. that turn. Yep, and they were like, "Oh, that's going to be a penalty," and I was like, "What?" Well, <laughs> it's the, like he didn't see him and he moved over. I don't, I don't see how you penalize that. You there, know? there was a move on turn two as well. Uh, I think it was turn two, if I remember correctly. Oh, there was a lot of people that got pushed off. Well, it wasn't even or pushed. Sorry, turn one, a lot of people got pushed off. A lot off. of people got pushed yeah. off on turn one, yeah. But turn two, there was another move. Um, I could, I can't remember offhand who the two drivers were. I watched the, the race live, so it's been a yeah. few days. Um, and I did, didn't take notes because I'm lazy. Uh, <laughs> but there was an incident where they, they claimed that the driver... So two drivers went into the corner. One was essentially front wing at the rear wheels of the other driver, and he broke the wing, and uh, the the front driver broke the rear driver's front wing. Yep. And then the rear driver or the front driver went off the circuit just a touch, right? Mm-hmm. Clearly, like just contact. They they moved around, right? And what I saw in that situation is, if I'm the lead driver. Or if I'm the, even if I'm the team principal or the the crew chief, whatever you want to call the individual on any given series, because obviously everybody's got their own names for it. If, if I'm sitting back, I'm going, why are you trying to take the apex there? Give that guy space. Do not do that. Because yeah. all you're doing is now jeopardizing our race. Like, what he did is came straight down on another driver 
When he knew he was there, they were just battling. He had made the move. Don't come down that hard on that corner. You don't need that apex that badly. But, like, I get the racing aspect of it as well. But also, to sit here and listen to the announcers go, oh, that was a big lunge by that the, the follow driver. It's like, it wasn't a big lunge. He's just trying to hold the inside line to then have a, a chance down the straight, which is totally fair. I think that's a, a justifiable thing. What do you want him to do, back entirely out and just go, yeah, nope, he got it. Yeah, Because like, I, I, you, you're talking out of both sides of your mouth. If you're going to say, like, okay, I understand why this guy took the apex so aggressively. He has to race. I don't understand why this guy didn't back out. It's like, well, because he had to race as well. You know, yeah, you can't. I, <laughs> I think there's a lot of bias, especially with the announcers. And I think the bias for the announcers is mostly to keep things uh, interesting, right? That's their job is to make the race interesting from their perspective. Create drama through audio. Exactly. And so I think that's where it comes from from them. Overall, I like the announcers. I think Lee Diffie, Townsend Bell, I think they all do a great job. Yeah. I I think when it comes to the actual drivers and the racing, I think because of the standards that IndyCar has abided by for these past, for all the races that I've watched, it's like... You know, just like uh, Scott Dixon said with the award move, it's like, okay, if that's what IndyCar is going to tolerate, then that's what they're going to get. Yeah. And I also think it comes down to the drivers. It's like, oh, if you push me off, okay, next time I see you, I'm going to push you off. Right. And, you know, it's like, for example, you know, you take Fernando Alonso and you take Sebastian Vettel, right? I think both those drivers are known for being calculated in how they drive and being very clean. Yes. And... Uh, you took both of them in a similar car, and they're racing and trading positions. They're not going to run into each other, you know. No, not not likely. Right. If they make a move, they're going to leave space. If it's a, you know, it's going to be a clean race. Yep. And I think there are just certain drivers that just don't race that way, whether it's lack of experience or they just have so much aggression, and you know that's their style. And if IndyCar tolerates that, then that's how you get that kind of move. That's how you get pedal award. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Pato's really quick, but I think he is. I mean, obviously, he's very aggressive. He's like a, he's either, it literally seems like his attitude is, I will win or I will crash trying. Yes, you know. Yep. And which, you know, I'm sure some people appreciate. And in the grand scheme of things, maybe it's not such a big deal. Well, and I think it makes sense for somebody like McLaren, Arrow McLaren, to have that kind of setup because. They've got Rosenquist, Felix Rosenquist, who's a very good, conservative, smart driver that puts the car in the right place on a regular basis, and Alexander Rossi, who does exactly the same thing. So you get two conservative drivers, both fast. You know, conservative is not necessarily derogatory in this statement. So two conservative drivers that just kind of are always there. You might as well have one guy that's just a a lunatic out there trying (laughs) to go win the race. And and I think that it makes sense for a team strategy. Yeah, and it's funny. Award all the time. I'll see. I'll be. I'll sort of discount him. I was like, oh, he's down the order now because he made a mistake being too aggressive. Yeah. And then towards the end of the race, you're like, wait, he's back. Yeah. Where'd he come from? Yeah. Fights his way through the entire field again. So he's clearly got the pace. But but yeah, a good example of being extremely aggressive. And I think he also is guilty of the same thing that Max is, where he'll make a move on somebody else. I think they're almost identical drivers, to be honest with you. Yeah. I think Max has more skill and Very. maybe a little more conservative, but not much. Yeah, I, I think the cars lend themselves to that description as well. I think yeah. the Formula One car, generally, you have to keep it a little bit more clean True. than an Indy car. But, but yeah, it's like, you know, somebody takes Pato out and it's like, wow, oh, that was ridiculous. I can't believe blah, blah, blah. He takes somebody else out. He's like, no, I thought the move was fine. Yeah. You're yeah. like, what? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> 
How does how does that work? How do you and and I understand it also. I don't I don't want to be the armchair uh, quarterback here. I totally understand uh, the drivers' perspectives. You know, they're out there in a competition in the moment. It's heated. I totally understand that. Oh, I kind of absolutely. hate. I hate the idea that we get the radio sometimes because then we get all judgmental. But oh, did you hear what he said about? If you put ninety nine percent of people in that exact same situation, they're going to be even more heated than these drivers are. <laughs> Speaking of radios, did you hear Alex Pillow's radio early in the race? No. Okay. So Alex Pillow pits at some point. Like there was an early caution. Uh, everybody comes in, changes tires, does all their stuff, fuel stop, etc. Pillow comes in. Race is kind of settled in a little bit, and he radios to his team. How long do I have to have these tires go on? And they give him the the data. His only response was an f bomb. <laughs> 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 ended up winning the race yeah did a fantastic job dude is ridiculously fast man yeah apparently he was testing a formula one car in canada before uh coming down to to do that race i wonder who uh who's looking at him i don't know but somebody is smart yeah i mean somebody's he's really smart. fast dude he got so um for those of you that didn't watch the race and want to tune out now i guess i kind of gave away the the winner but i'm going to give away a little bit of the details at the end uh, Colton Herta was actually leading the race for most of the, the race, which is um, not that atypical. Colton Herta's very fast on circuits. Yeah, he, I thought he was controlling the race quite well, and then at the end just... I, I have a thought on Colton Herta that I, I want to expand on a little bit, uh, okay. but I'll, I'll save it for after the Pillow uh, discussion. So Pillow, I, 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 he was just hanging in there right behind Herta, doing a good job managing tires, managing fuel, uh, which I love. Again, I love that they have to manage fuel. I, I just, that aspect, as far as adding one more thing onto the driver's plate to have to figure out what to do, I would love for fuel stops to come back in Formula One. I think it would make such a big difference. Uh, but uh, Pelot does a fantastic job. Herta's just kind of hanging in there, you know, anywhere from one and a half to three seconds. Maybe he extends it to, to four, but not much more than that. And it's just kind of hanging in there. Within like three laps of Pelot passing Herta, he had extended it to a six-second lead, just gone, and it, like, and it wasn't an effort at all. He just disappeared. Yeah, and, and Herta dropped these are back. Spec vehicles. Yeah, Herta dropped back even after that too. Yeah, it, it, but it, the thing is, Pelo just left the field. Yeah, just decided he was faster than everybody else, and it looks like it, man. Like yeah. it, leg- he. You got to remember, he is. A weird incident with Renus VK on the pit lane away from potentially being a four straight race winner because he uh, at, at Indy 500. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think he well, I think he would have had a very high chance of winning that race if that incident didn't happen yes. in the pits. Yeah, but but yeah, no, I totally agree. Although I have seen a couple times now in Indy, somebody will be controlling the race in the lead, and I don't fully understand the tire strategy. Uh, with the Indy cars between they have their what primary and alternates yep. which is the equivalent of like soft medium whatever they pretty much have a soft and a hard for the race yeah so sometimes it seems like somebody gambles and it's just trying to limp the car to the end so I don't know if that was Herta's case or not but then someone else just comes and you remember in Formula One like in Vettel's era when we had all you know four different tire compounds and yeah you know, somebody would be on softs at the end. Somebody would be on mediums. We're like, oh, we're going to get a battle here because the guy and behind is on softs. softs. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and uh, so it kind of seems like that. And it's unfortunate because 
I, it's got to suck for that driver because they're like, I can see the end. And then somebody just blows right by, and they have it no does, pace in the car. It does, but when the people that that love to claim, oh well, that's that just turns it more into a team event. No, that's all about driver strategy. Yeah, like that and is managing that comes, the tires. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. it's very very important to that aspect. And uh, but managing tires is always a thing too. So yes, it, it is. Even yeah. if you change the compounds and stuff, you still have to manage tires. Well, and I figured out because I I always have a hard time. I don't know if uh, if you have the same issue, but I can never remember which of the two are soft at Indy because they don't say. Very often, they just call them the primaries and the alternates. Yeah, I don't know either. So, easiest way to remember it is think of it like a uh, safety on a firearm. Anybody that's a that that knows firearms well enough, red means you're hot, right? You got to go. So those you, are softs. Those are your softs. Those okay. are, that's your fast button. All right, fair enough. So, like, I I just thought of it. I'm like, okay, you got black and red. What what else uses black and red? Well, safeties, safeties on firearms. Really easy to remember that. If you're yeah. not, if you don't use firearms, I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> uh, but the point I wanted to make on Colton Herta, so Colton Herta was a maybe the best young driver last year, um, last couple of years really. Uh, I don't think I think his rookie year was two years ago. It may have been last year. I can't remember offhand. But he he was extremely good last year in particular. Um, and his crew chief was his father, Brian Herta. His crew chief is now not Brian Herta. Brian Herta is now managing uh, Kyle Kirkwood who is having a phenomenal season. That's got to be weird. Yeah. So, I like Colton Herta, but it looks to me like the key was really Brian Herta, who was a fantastic IndyCar driver himself. Hmm. But Brian Herta did such a good job of managing Colton and helping Colton win races and put himself in the position because now what I'm seeing, just as a spectator, I don't see Colton winning races the way he won races before. He's not going out and commanding like, dude. He Barber, I think it was Barber last year. Just from start to finish, was better than everybody else. No questions asked. Managed the race perfectly. No mistakes. Everything was done right. And that's like we all sat back and went, "Wow, Colton did a fantastic job." We have not seen that this year since Brian Hurd is now managing Kyle Kirkwood, not Colton. Hmm. That's interesting. I, I just thought it was one of those things. It's like, hmm, this, this is odd. It's a little odd. That that's con- the kind of convenient, stuff, I guess, is a better way to put it. Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that you don't really take into account that often, but it's a huge piece of the puzzle. It's just like uh, a lot of the success you see in Formula One with different Formula One teams, I think it's attributed, for example, like Mercedes when they started dominating. Um, you know, I think a lot of people see that and go, oh, wow. Mercedes, you know, like the brand Mercedes came in and did really well. Like, as you know, generally in Formula One, when a brand comes in, they buy a team that's already there because, like, yes. you, you do not want to set up from scratch a Formula One operation. Look at what Haas has been trying to do forever. Ex- exactly. It's yeah. extremely difficult. And so you just buy something that's already existing and try to improve it. Whereas Mercedes, when they came in, they took over Ross Braun right after or not that long after they won the championship as Braun, right. GP with Jensen Button. So, ergo, yeah. <laughs> Mercedes is not necessarily Mercedes. It's actually Braun that ran things for a while and led them to uh, when they first started winning all those championships. Right. And so, you know, the whole reason I bring that up is, like you said, it could be a factor behind the scenes, whether it was strategy or just organization. Who knows right. what it was, but that's and an that, important factor. But. 
and, and, it, and it, but it's not. It's also not the only factor too. Is like you know, you're still sitting back now watching Road America. Colton Herta just led most of the race. Yeah, did a fantastic job doing so. You know, it. I don't care what crew chief you put behind Scott Dixon. Scott Dixon is still one of the best drivers on the grid. Yep. And it would be the same thing in Formula One, right? Like Max is better because he's paired with Christian Horner. But if you put Max with Toto Wolf, he's still really good too. Yeah. And same thing for Lewis. Like Lewis probably went. I, I would argue that Christian Horner is a better um, team manager than than Toto Wolf is. Mm-hmm. I, I think he just overall does a better job uh, managing personalities, managing race, whatever. Uh, all of it. I think he's just he he is about as a plus as it comes. So Lewis might win one more world championship with Christian Horner, but. Why? Why does Lewis win all the world championships? Because the car was really good, and because Lewis is really fast. Yeah, it, it they're they're a piece to the puzzle, but not the reason for it. It just stacks the odds in your favor. It does. And when you're dealing with the percentages that you're dealing with at the top of any sport, you need all those factors right. that you the, can get. The margin for error is really, really small. Yeah, it's just like you know, for example, if you looked at you know, when you get these photos of the bottom of F1 cars, it's always really funny because everybody's super interested because you really never see the bottom of them. But sometimes, you know, when they're lifted off the circuit. Yeah. All of Monaco. Monaco. Yeah. And, exactly. Yeah. Every, um, every team's biggest fear. <laughs> yeah. So if you looked at like the bottom of a Williams and the bottom or the floor of a Red Bull, the difference is astounding yes. in terms of complexity. And the reality, though, is that okay, yeah, Red Bull's faster than Williams, but they're not that much faster. But that complexity that the Red Bull has is giving them that edge because the you know the competition is so tight. Yeah, when you have 1% 45 times, you have 45% better vehicle. Exactly, and that 1% in Formula 1 is a big deal. Yes. Um, so Yeah, 1% is probably an overstatement. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, so that's generally the ha- how that happens. But speaking of Formula 1... We'll move on to the Canadian GP, and it sounds like you have some thoughts on it. I do. So, it's crap. Okay. It's my thoughts. I mean, so, I actually just watched it. Um, I watched the, I have long Mondays at work, so I don't generally get to watch anything. I, I pretty much work all day, and I come home. So, Sunday, I didn't watch it. I watched the IndyCar um, and the US Open, because... It was the U.S. Open. Yeah, I'm going to watch that. Yeah. Uh, so then, I, I come home today and I, I'm able to watch the Canadian Grand Prix. And goodness gracious, was that miserably boring? Like unbelievably <laughs> boring, dude. Nothing happened. Nothing happened the whole race. The most exciting thing that happened the entire race happened on the final lap, on the final corner between Norris and Albon, or not Albon, um, Gasly. And it's it, and I'm just. What Formula One? What are we doing? Yeah, because um. I watch IndyCar, right? And and I'm not, I am not a bigger IndyCar fan than I am a Formula One fan. But right now, if both are on, I'm tuning into IndyCar, which yeah. I did on Sunday. Yeah, because it's more entertaining. Like, I, it's you know, it's for, so frustrating. It's like the same comparison that we keep drawing, though, and the same themes, like I was mentioning earlier. You have IndyCar where it's like anything can happen at any time, and there's tons of action. And then you have Formula One, which is it, it's like soccer and football. You know, it's like that kind of difference. But it's even worse because, at least in soccer, when you get a goal, something happens, right? Yeah. 
actually nothing happened for two hours. Yeah. In this Formula One race. And they don't even, it's gotten to the point now like where George they, Russell hit a wall. Yeah. That was the peak <laughs> amount of excitement in the entire damn race. I think Lando got the most highlights of the race actually making passes and things. Yeah, he did. He looked, and he he finished, looked the best. I don't know. I'm not even sure if he made, I like think he did ninth, just barely maybe? get into the points. Yeah. How bad is that? But it's funny. We've gotten to the point now where they don't even show uh, Verstappen at all on exactly. the TV until he's like, oh, and Verstappen has won the race. <laughs> Well, and what's crazy is it's like I I remember that being a thing regularly when Vettel was winning I was about to early, make that, on, yeah, early on in the comparison. Mercedes era with with Hamilton, but those wins were by forty some odd seconds or yeah. a minute and a half. Like those were weird wins, like just gone. Yeah. The dude just disappeared. This was like eight seconds the whole time, but it was an insurmountable eight seconds. Yeah, it's. I've thought about this a lot because, and I think we've we've gone into it before on the podcast, but Formula One is almost always destined to enter this uh, situation in where everything is so calculated that it's just like you. There's so much that you can predict will happen because it's so calculated. Well, predictability comes when creativity is stifled. Yes. But and the, there's we, no creativity in Formula One at this point. Yeah, but there's also just no parity, you know. And that's the thing. It's like, I think we've discussed this before. We've there have been great races in Formula One in seasons that people generally think of as really boring. Mm-hmm. You know, so it's not it's not that there isn't good racing. There sometimes is really great racing, but it's like nobody can really pin down what actually leads to that happening. And that, I think, is the great mystery of racing in terms of entertainment. You know, I'm thinking back to, like, uh, you can pick almost any track, and at some point it will have a really exciting race, and then you come back and be like, why was that race so exciting? And you're like, well, there was a bunch of battles, but, like, it wasn't, it actually, you know, it didn't rain, or, um, you know, so-and-so still won, and, like, normally when that happens, it's yeah. not that interesting. But sometimes people just, I don't know if it's psychological um, where they just go at it and they have a proper fight. Um, maybe sometimes they're just too focused on strategy that they don't do that. I don't know. Yeah, well, I mean, this is a perfect opportunity. This race in particular was a perfect opportunity to see Mercedes and Aston Martin battle it out. You had the two best drivers, may, maybe the two best drivers on the grid. There's a case to be made that those that's number one and number two, and Max just has a great car. Yeah, I'm not sure I agree with it, but there, that's at least a case. You have your top two of your top three drivers right there battling against each other nothing happened yep. they they went through what two corners three corners a little bit of fighting here and there Alonso but then once the move. move's over it's over yeah and it's that's gone. the weird thing in formula one yes and i don't you don't see that in indycar and you don't see that in sports car racing well and i i i think it's because there is so the nice the thing is like i guess the way i would look at a lot of the racing is you need You've got sort of a spectrum, right? So you have spec racing, no pun intended, on one end of the spectrum, and then you have extremely free, wide open, do whatever the hell you want on the other spectrum, right? And Formula One is closer to the free, do whatever you want, but they limit so much that they end up removing all creativity. Yeah. So the creativity then moves to the other end of the spectrum, where 
you have spec racing and now the creativity comes in what the drivers are doing behind the wheel rather than what the car is capable of yeah we all know what the drivers or we think we know what the drivers are capable of in formula one but they're not allowed to do it because everything is so tightly restricted i think that's absolutely true and i think what ends up causing the problem is because everything is so limited, the cars have relatively similar strengths and weaknesses. So I always reference the WEC when we had Toyota running the V8s, the Audi diesels, and um, who am I forgetting? Porsches with their little V4. Yeah. So you had like, and you know, one was gas, one was diesel, turbocharged, naturally aspirated, different hybrid systems. And yet, they were all able to race in competitive way. And right. you still didn't know who was going to win. And different tracks, you'd be like, oh, Audi is going to be really strong here. And this car is not going to be for, you know, they had, like, if you think of, like, a video game um, performance chart, right? They right. were all skewed in different directions. Whereas Formula One, because everything's so tight, they're all generally the same. So you don't go to a track and think, like, I mean, we still hear it. You know, we'll hear, oh, Red Bull isn't going to be as strong on this track. And then guess what? They are strong. And she's like, that was yeah. a lie. <laughs> yeah, well, and <laughs> they're all basically the same, except one is faster. Right. So what what's the problem there? Is are you telling me that all of the tracks are way too similar, or are you telling me that the cars are too tightly restricted, and therefore no one is allowed to be creative enough to actually make a move? Imagine IndyCar, where the top six cars got ten extra horsepower. Okay. The result of that would be those six cars. Always winning. Right. And that's basically what Formula One is. And it's not that, um, you know, it's not that it's bad that they have this advantage, but I'm just saying that everything else, you know, the IndyCar example is that the cars are the same, except one is faster. And it's like, you, you can't get around that. Right. There's nothing you can do to overcome that advantage. Yes. If you're the car that doesn't have that advantage, you right. know? And that's, I think, where Formula One's at. It's like, oh, they have an advantage. We literally cannot close that gap because the only way to close that gap is to do what they're doing and they're already six months ahead of us and they're continuing to improve everybody's improving so you're just stuck yeah yeah well and and i think it's like it's fair to red bull like credit to them for doing what they're doing right like credit to adrian newey for developing the best aerodynamically uh, viable car every single year year in and year out for the last what 15 years or whatever yeah. it is yeah i Credit to Mercedes for seemingly developing the best engine nearly every year. I mean, the, the Honda engine does seem to be pretty good this year. Yeah, it's improved, yeah. Uh, but overall, I think between the fact that Aston Martin and Mercedes are both running Mercedes engines and are at the top, it's yeah. kind of a testament to, all right, everybody else. Because I don't see very many other Hondas doing anything special, right? No. So, um, yeah, it's like testament to all of those individual proponents of each team that's fine that's great but we are sitting back and just creating a parade week in and week out because there is no creativity allowed because the rules are so restrictive on what's allowed to be done and everybody's immediately penalized for the most minor thing and then the drivers are sitting back going we can't even race each other because if we slightly touch we break the smallest component of aerodynamics which absolutely shuts down the viability of the vehicle, and now we cannot race. I, the Indy cars this past weekend slammed into each other 
Or at Detroit, one of the I forget whose car was it. Was it Herta, whose uh, front wing was just dangling for half the race? Yes, yeah. I, I don't. I don't okay. know that it was Herta. I it may. I, you may be right. I can't remember. But yes, that like it, you're making the correct point. I just the cars are so fragile that the drivers can't race. The drivers can't race anyway. Another thing, I saw a graphic over the weekend. By the way, the current Formula One car is something like two feet shorter not even two feet i think it was like one and a half feet shorter than a 1500 ram a pickup truck a full-size pickup truck like yeah. could you imagine those trying to go around the circuit and everybody's like well it doesn't look like there's any space well yeah no kidding so it's yeah. just we're creating we've created this environment in formula one that's just not conducive to racing and it- then we all sit back and go how come the racing sucks? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it's like we've done it in iterative steps where you're just like, yes. oh, we'll do this thing. That'll be good. We're like, big, wide tires, faster cars. We're like, yeah, 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 yeah. That sounds good. And now we're like, oh, wait a second. Oh, hold, hold on, guys. We we, we might have messed up here. But I think another problem is actually, in a weird way, the efficiency of a Formula One car is is part of its downfall, again, in terms of entertainment because – I don't know how to describe this without sounding like an idiot, so you got to bear with me here. And I say that because I'm going to use a bad example, but I, I hope the point still is valid. So in the video games and racing sims that I've played, the interesting thing when you drive a Formula One car is like compared to something like a GT car, right? Is a GT car on the limit is like, you're, you're like doing some black magic stuff where you're just feeling it just slide a little bit and you got to do everything just right and it's the the edge is a much bigger space compared to something like a formula one car where you're just like okay uh this corner is just flat and the only thing that matters is your line and that does matter but it's like you're talking like fractions of fractions Versus, again, the GT car, you're sliding, you might gain a little bit on the entry, but then you lose a little bit on the exit. It's like flowing a little bit more, whereas something like a Formula 1 car is so good. and it's especially like math every corner. Exactly. That's exactly my point, is it's like you could calculate it. And think about it. Like, um, if they're hitting their braking points, and they are um, on the corners that are flat out, they have a decent line. You could basically break it down. You go, you know what? Actually, there's only like two or three places on the circuit where there's really time to be lost or gained. Everything else is like academic. Yes. And I think that's a big part of the problem. And it depends on the circuit, too. There's some circuits that I think are maybe easier for a Formula One car to get around. You know, think of like these corners with like sweeping corners. They're just flat and they're steering through it. Yeah. And like I said, that's just academic. Well, and look look at the. But look at the circuits that have the space. That Those are the ones that generally seem to put up the best races. We say every year, Coda is one of the best races every year. Why? Because yeah. there's a lot of space. Because there's a lot of room for these guys to actually cha- to make some moves and do some and things. And make mistakes. Because Coda is actually a really weird, tricky it's, track. It is. It's very technical. Yeah. Um, but I, I, th- I think the biggest battle that Formula One has uh, to face right now is if if they care about racing, and I'm not sure that they do, as a as a organization, uh, which is fair. If that's the, if that's the 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 direction you want to head down, and you want to go, we are full on technological development. I think you're lying to yourselves because you're not. You're you're just not going with unlimited technological development, you're, especially now yeah. with Liberty. Um, but if that's the route you want to go down, fine, go down that route. 
if you want to try and incorporate racing, they are then limited by the fact that you do not want the marketing. Imagine, I'm gonna I'm gonna make the point for Formula One, and then I'm gonna make an analogy. So you cannot go into next year running slower, fastest laps every single race. That would be like on the PGA Tour. All you ever see right now on the PGA Tour is, oh, driver distance. Look at this guy. He hit it 395, and then they go, all right, well, this year, uh, yeah, longest drive on the Tour, 333. It's like, what the hell happened? What did you guys do? Yeah. And that's – so – that's where Formula One's stuck right now is they, they have to continuously improve lap time, improve lap time, improve lap time, improve lap time. Well, how do you do that? You make, you just, again, like you said, it's all mathematics. It's calculators, right? Whereas if we shrunk the cars, made them more difficult to drive, yeah, your lap times aren't as fast. Hell no. There's no way they are. But guess what happens? People make mistakes. The racing gets more entertaining. Exactly. Cars are able to battle. There's more space on the track. The quote-unquote line is not the line anymore there's multiple lines you can take like and i you know it's really tricky in formula one too because the teams are just going to find a way and i think there's a chart you can find where they have done that before basically the f1 cars haven't really gotten any faster i think since the mid to late 80s to 90s we've basically been stuck at those speeds because they're not really willing to make them faster or let them be faster. But the lap times have changed. Not really. The fa- I mean, you're, they're still running the fastest laps. Now they are. But if you look at this graph, you'll see that they get really fast, rules change, and it drops back down. And then they figure it out again, and then rules change, it goes back down. Right. And it sort of ebbs and flows like that. But my, my point in, in uh, saying that is that, you know, when we first... Uh, even the hybrid cars, when they first came on, we saw the cars sliding, you know, because now all of a sudden they got all this power and torque. Uh, even when we switched to the wide tires, like, yeah, they had a lot more grip, and but they were also messing with the aero and stuff. And then, guess what? They figure it out. And, like, when you watch the races now, I, I don't think you really see anybody sliding unless they're in the on the dirty part of the track and the marbles. Right. Or if it's raining, obviously. Or they've made a, like a big mistake, like when Russell went into the wall. Like that was yeah, a big but mistake. You shouldn't have to slide. You shouldn't have to make a mistake to slide the car. You should be yeah, exactly. You should be on that limit. Like again, going back to IndyCar, you see IndyCar sliding out of almost every corner. Yes, you know, and they it, look squirrely as all get out. Yeah, and if you saw that in F one, it would you fix. See, it see, would fix all of the racing. You see it in WEC. Yeah. You see, we said it immediately on, uh, what was it, Sebring? Yeah, it was Sebring, the cars being twitchy. The, the, yeah, the Ferraris were all over the place. Yeah. And that was actually a point I wanted to make, too, is like you say, oh, well, Formula One will always figure it out. I I think Sebring is a perfect example. You take turn 17, ridiculously wide, right? Just mm-hmm. the widest corner humanity has ever come up with. Yeah. I don't think Formula One, every team has the same line going through there. I don't think there becomes a quote-unquote fastest line. I don't think there is, but I think they would convince themselves that there is. I think so the, so a, the racing would still end up in yes. the same spot. Yes. Okay, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I think it's like a psychological thing that the drivers have. and I. But I think it's because they have that with everything. I mean, their routines, their, their training, the 
I'm sure they do simulator work. Everything is like down yeah. to a science, and I'm sure that's just how they do things. They would go, "This is the fastest way through 17," and everybody else would be like, "Okay, bud." Yeah. <laughs> sure. Yeah. <laughs> but everybody would adopt it because they believe it's the fastest way through that corner. Right. And I think you see that, uh, like at Monaco, when they're avoiding the bumps, and you see them swing out to the inside and then swing back out. I'm sure it's faster, but like those guys are fighting for such small pieces of time that I'm sure if they just drove over that bump, it'd be like, okay, yeah, there's a bump there. I don't want to hit it. Yeah. It probably doesn't affect the time that much, you know, yeah. especially the way the cars are set up. Well, no, I bet you it's not even a time concern for them. I bet you it goes back to what we were saying about the cars being fragile. It's probably like, oh, you're going to damage the floor. Yeah. Which is ridiculous. Yeah. But, you know, the point is like if one person's doing it, they're all going to adopt it. That's that's just how well, it is. Whoever the fastest guy is, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, that's just how it is. I understand that. But, but yeah, I think it's an interesting point, you know. But, again, it's just the psychology of F1. And I don't know if that's – it's just my opinion when we were dealing with all the uh, dirty air problems. Yeah. I know that's a thing, and it's I'm sure it sucks. But I think 80% of that was psychological. Maybe, but I think you're also you. You do have everybody's closer. The whole the whole pack is jammed yeah, yeah, up a little bit. Absolutely, but in terms of like making passes, I think eighty yes. percent of that was like somebody coming to somebody else. Oh, I got to deal with dirty air. I'm just not going to be able to make yeah. the pass. You know, where all of a sudden you'd see another race. You're like, wow, that guy didn't have any problem whatsoever yeah. getting around that driver. But what I, happened I, there? I, I think you saw so much like if you don't want to go down the route that we've said multiple times where it's like you just give them 100 kilograms of fuel for the race and you figure it out, I, which I think is the real solution for Formula One because now you yeah. allow all technological development to, to just And it's extremely exciting then because rampant. imagine 10 different teams coming up with 10 different solutions. I guarantee solutions. you Ferrari runs a V10. Or something. I guarantee you they're in the V10. Yeah, or something interesting. amazing. Because there's no way in hell Mercedes is not running their V6 Turbo. Well, I'll put it this way. <laughs> yeah. How excited would you be if I came to you? Like, next year, um, there's a rules change, and all of a sudden, all the new cars start coming out. And I'm like, oh, have you heard about, you know, Ferrari's new car and, like, the format of it and everything? Yeah. You'd be interested in what that was and seeing it on track. Right. Versus if I go, hey, Joe, have you seen the 2024 Indy car? You'd be like, I, I know exactly right it's gonna be i don't yeah who cares right they changed the color i I couldn't care less about the (laughs) the indycar preseason yeah the formula one preseason is interesting because of technological development and imagine what it would be like you know because it was unlimited yeah and wec enjoyed that for a period when we're all like oh it's the new audi what if they change look at what happened with the hypercar we all of a sudden started hearing about whoa wait a minute porsche's getting involved lamborghini's getting involved like what and immediately everybody's going nuts the the problem that type of racing has a little bit of a different issue with just being endurance racing. You're not going to create like 70 lap shootouts. Well, no, but, but the, the unlimited aspect of it is at the very least very entertaining. But what I was going to get at is short of that, which you and I at the very least, and I would hope most of our listeners would agree would be the way to go. The, the next solution that I think is incredibly viable for Formula One to to fix a lot of the racing is shrink the cars in every proportion by 30% or whatever, 25%. You, you decide whatever percentage yeah. it is, but significantly, like very small. Yeah. Get back to 
mid two thousand, not even mid two thousand, like early two thousands, maybe late nineties. Yeah, I I agree. You don't have to simplify the arrow. You can keep the arrow exactly where it is, but make the cars smaller. Give them more space on the circuit to battle each other. Allow three wide into a corner instead of one and a half wide. I I also just think the cars need to be monsters to handle, you know, because if that's the case, then even when Max is in the lead by eight seconds, you're going, there's a real possibility that he might just fly off the track. He might make a mistake. Whereas right now, you're like, there's no way he's making a mistake. Yeah. There's like, you don't even. It's so stable. It's. Yeah, he made that one mistake. Yeah, he made one mistake where he hit the curb. But that wasn't. He laughed at it. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So, like, he's just cruising. And uh, so, yeah, I think the cars need to be monsters to the point where, like, it's a valid thing that somebody might make a mistake. Yeah. And it's that much more heroic when somebody does win, you know, and they actually you know they don't make a mistake or they're just drive so well that you're like wow that dude is wheeling that 1500 horsepower car on skinny tires or relatively skinny tires for formula one right you know so but again you know (laughs) what would happen if we did that as i think you would have in general the teams and everybody start complaining that the cars have no grip and you just feel like you know what that's Kind of the point. Yeah. Get on with it. Yeah, exactly. Get better. It's yeah. just like when we had the porpoising problem. And all the teams were like, oh, these cars are porpoising, blah, blah, blah. And then Red Bull's like, ours isn't that bad. Right. <laughs> you know? And so the teams are like, oh, it's these new cars and regulations. And it's like, figure it out. Yeah. You know? So I think that's what would likely happen. But let's get off of that. Okay. And get on to more positive news. Yep. Or positive story. Le Mans. Which is the best race in the world. Somewhat positive. I have some critiques. Okay. No, there's definitely some critiques. Okay. However, I, w- I want to say off the bat, I thought it was a fantastic race, and I was really pleased that it was a fantastic race, um, mostly because of the hypercar. I don't... I don't I'm just going to say hypercar action, because there's all sorts of stuff that happened. There was. Like... All the time. It was very endurance racy. Yes. Like, and it was it was they, just they didn't necessarily race each other. They they um outlasted each yeah, other. Exactly. Yeah. But uh personally I thought it was an epic race on top of the fact that it was the centenary and um Ferrari coming home with the win, which we'll talk about later, but the whole thing just ended up at the end I was just like, Wow. That was maybe you know all the stuff we were talking about IndyCar and Formula One. If you don't, if you're not into endurance racing, you might be like, "Oh, there wasn't that much racing," and that's fair. But personally, I saw the overall event as just like an epic event. That I I was pleased with how the Centenary Mall went, and also shocked that Ferrari came home with the win. I did not expect I, that. I was pleasantly surprised. Like, as just as a fan of racing, it was nice to see Ferrari get the win. Would I have preferred Porsche to get it? Yes, of course. Yeah. But but we legitimately had, at several dis- different points in the race, where I was thinking, like, at one point, I think the Hertz Porsche was was going pretty strong, and I was like, oh, wow. Well, Porsche's... Jota was leading for a while there. Yeah, they were. Like, a solid lead. Yeah. And then at one point, it was the Caddy. And then at one point, it was in the night, in the rain. The rain had a huge effect. The Peugeots looked great in the rain. Yeah. Yeah, I was like, wow, Peugeot might have an advantage be, here. I, I, I do like the Peugeots. And I love I them. Want, I, and I want them to win Le Mans. Um, 
but for this one, like like you said, just the the whole, just every this historic encompassing of, look, this is like you said, it's it's the centennial race. It's everything about it. You just, it's like you need Porsche, Audi, Ford, or Ferrari have to win this, right? You pick it. I don't care. But, like you, one of those four, I don't want Cadillac winning it. I don't want Peugeot winning <laughs> it. I don't want Toyota winning it. See, I felt that. I felt like we were going to win no matter what because I looked at all the teams that could possibly win. I'm like, there's a storyline for every single car entered in this I, race. I agree, but I, I'm a person. I, I am a big fan. I think we talked about this on last podcast or two podcasts ago. I, I, I'm a big proponent of fitting wins. Like, I want like, I want like something. Deserving? Like, I want an American to win the U.S. Open. Yeah, I want fair. an Englishman to win the Open Championship. I want, like... I love like Rafa Nadal being the greatest French yeah. Open tennis player of all time, uh, being a, a Spaniard. But you know, nearest makes no difference. It's not. I'm not comparing Spain to yeah, France necessarily, yeah. but like that sort of area of Europe. It just it all works right. Like I like that stuff. So when all of a sudden you say, "Look, this is a really significant event. This is one of the biggest Le Mans we had in years." Well, what does that mean? Well, at least get one of your big four: Ferrari, Ford. Porsche or Audi to win. We got it. We yeah. got one of them. Yeah, no. I like that. Yeah, I agree. I don't want Toyota to win that I, that I will event. say. I don't care if Toyota wins next year outside of, again, Porsche losing. Yeah. I, but that like that doesn't matter. Last year and next year, I don't care. This one in particular needed a, like a historic major team to win yeah. it. Yeah. And although... Pujo being the hometown hero would have been just epic. I think, especially because they had that performance in bad conditions. Yeah, and you saw the other teams struggling with pace. But I don't know what it was that they they. I, I don't know, so but it was amazing, fast, man. So fast in the rain, <laughs> they had no issues. Yeah, every time I saw rain, I was like, "Oh, here comes the Pujo." Yeah, <laughs> and, and there uh, was a lot of rain. Oh, there was a ton of rain, and then, but even if Toyota won, because I thought about, it, I didn't really want Toyota to win, but if they did. I was gonna be like, fair enough, Toyota. All that, all that smack I was talking about you guys racing by yourselves. Fair enough, you just beat everybody. Um, so that's like would have been a validation for him. But yeah, it was just, it was an awesome, awesome endurance race. And like you said, the rain played a huge part because it came early, and. We had a situation like heavy, yeah, heavy rain on a portion of the circuit because Le Mans is such a big circuit, right? And we had the classic people stuck on slicks sliding off all over the place. Well, it it was at the point where it was raining on what a tenth of the circuit essentially, so you really couldn't move off of slicks. You needed to be on slicks. Yeah, you just had to somehow navigate the tiptoe. And yeah. of course, the call comes through. It's like, oh, it's raining at the Porsche curves heavily. Yeah, and you're like, oh, the great, worst spot possible. <laughs> like, I mean, outside of maybe the Molsan only. Like, if it was yeah, just that would be plain bad. dumping on the Molsan. Then yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I, my only complaint for the whole event, and I'm sure you're going to touch on it at some oh, point, yeah. is is the safety cars. Absolutely. I, I mean, it, uh, it, let's get it out of the way because it was horrid. I let me put it this way. I was doing some yard work, tuned into Le Mans because obviously it's it's on. So I'm gonna, I sat down, started watching it. First safety car came on. The first safety car lasted what an hour and a half or something like that. I there got there up, was a safety car that was in over an hour. A, after 30 minutes, I was like, I'm done. Like I am, I need to go back and do stuff. So you immediately like 
I am a good, proper racing fan that watches a lot of Le Mans. I left. That says a lot about your event. Like, you guys screwed up with that. That's not a thing. You shouldn't do this. This no. is not okay. Yeah, it was horrid, especially considering I've always praised, like, when they first introduced the slow zones, I was always like, I don't know about this. But then they did it, and I was like, you know what? That actually makes sense, and it works really well, as opposed to, like, especially at the at Sebring this year when they did the slow zones versus – because the problem is they – I'm all over the place here, but they did the same thing that IMSA does now. And one of my complaints at Sebring was the ridiculous safety car periods because they do this thing that's fair for the drivers that get picked up by the safety car to essentially keep everybody in the same order without anybody gaining an advantage. But doing that at Le Mans sucks. <laughs> yeah. Because they have to go an entire lap to come back around, and then they open up the pits, and then everybody does their pit stop, and then they keep going around under the safety it's, car. It's too big to do it's it. It's ridiculous. And it doesn't make any sense because they used to do um, uh, multiple safety cars. Mm -hmm. And when they introduced that, I was like, I don't know, that's kind of wonky. And guess what? It worked. And then this year they're like, ah, let's try something totally different. You're like, what? No, why? Yeah. It's so stupid. Yeah, no, it, it was egregiously bad, and it ruined a lot of the race for me. And that's, I, I ended up And they not didn't watching. even need to be safety cars, also. A there's, lot of them did not. No. There's slow zones work perfect. I don't, why would you yeah. put the safety car out there knowing it's going to take an hour? Right. I, I think they figured that out halfway through the race. Too. I think they did. I think there was a lot of trial and error for that for that event and and like i said i mean it was a it was a properly good event overall it was just ruined by dumb logistics by <clears throat> the fia yeah again like i don't want to get ranty with this but goodness gracious that organization has no idea what the hell they're doing and my problem with it is like just know what you're doing well and know what you're not like the system that they used previously with multiple, three different safety cars, it worked perfectly fine. Just do that again. When was the last time you watched a Nürburgring 24-hour? Bigger track, right? Yeah. Larger track. When was the last time you went, God, we got an hour and a half long safety car? Oh, no, you're out. You're like, I'm not watching that. It's just not a thing. Like, yeah. that's not a problem that they have. I don't understand why all of a sudden at Le Mans we have an hour and a half safety car. It's because we are now... It, it sucks, because legitimately, because I thought about it a lot, just like I thought about it at Sebring, because it really annoyed me the way IMSA was doing it, right? It's so that if the leader of GTE just passed the overall leader, essentially second place, if a safety car comes out, goes a lap down, effectively, because that first place GTE comes all the way back around behind the overall leader in right. the safety car. However... I think tough. I think what goes around comes around. Sometimes you lose some, sometimes you win some. Or you just set it up so that whenever the the leader picks up the safety car, or you just pick up the leaders in each class. How about that? Wouldn't well, yeah, that solve I mean, the problem? When, when does when does the quote-unquote unfairness stop, right? Like Exactly. Do, do you sit back and go, okay, well, that guy got collected by an incident like – that GTE car was not involved in the two hypercars crashing into each other other than then he got collected. He should therefore have unlimited time to repair his car. Doesn't matter how many laps he needs to do. He can come back out and immediately back on lead lap. No, that's uh, not a thing. So why are we all of a sudden trying to create some sort of artificial fairness with the safety cars? I've never understood this. I, it's it's luck. It's good luck, bad luck. It's 
it's the crap of racing, but it's what happens. It's what everybody has to deal with and what everybody has dealt with for nearly a century at this point. Yeah, literally. Yeah, I, I, I err on the side of that as well. However, if you are going to institute that rule and it's already on the books, then it's like, okay, well, you can't take it away now because like now you're going backwards. And it is a major... It is a major shift in terms of like the regulation for a safety car because it has a huge implication. Um, but again, like I said, there's got to be a better way to do it at Le Mans than having everybody go around and come back. Like it, it was terrible, absolutely terrible. And it was by far, it put a damper on the race for sure. And even the slow zones caused some problems, which yeah, I did. thought was a little bit weird. Um, and I don't know if that was just endurance racing people you know fatigue kind of thing but we had a, quite a few incidents where people just like plowed into slow zones and had accidents creating more slow zones yeah <laughs> but, but uh, i mean that's the old adage of cautions breed cautions i mean it's yeah yeah but uh with that out of the way and it was horrid yeah um uh but yeah other than that man the hypercar class was they nailed amazing it. they nailed it yeah and I loved having multiple, like more than two cars. Also, like Cadillac fielding three cars, Porsche fielding, I guess technically four cars, and, and then, having a privateer team too yes. with the same car. I love that yes. aspect. I love that so much. Yeah, more teams need to do that. Oh, absolutely. I, I hope. I hope. I hope the Jota team encourages others to do it because it should absolutely be a thing. It's, well, it's like how it used to be did, with Group C and uh, GTP. Yeah. Did we not say this going in, though, before we even saw any testing or anything with Le Mans? We knew immediately. As soon as we saw Porsche and Jota together, you went, oh, boy. Yeah. That's going to be fast. Yeah. That's going to—they know what they're—that's not just a private tier. Yeah. No, Porsche wouldn't just give their cars to just yeah. anybody. Yeah. As soon as you saw Jota, it may, you're like, okay, here we go. Yeah. Here we go. Like, and, and, and it proved right. And it proved that they belong, and they, like they are just as viable as as the big boys, as the proper manufacturers of uh, to to be involved. And I was I was rooting for them. I was like, hell yeah, I don't care. Oh, it's, like, awesome. it's got a big Porsche logo on it. I don't give a damn who's running it. Oh, I just love the fact that throughout, I would say up until the next day, and by next day, I'm I'm speaking mostly to when I woke up and turned it back on, which was would have been like three or four hours until the end of the race. Okay. Um. You know, the whole time it was like, oh, looks like Cadillac's in a really strong position. And then an hour later, you're like, oh man, you know, the Jota is in a really strong position. Yep. And then it was the Peugeot in the rain. Yep. And then it was the Toyotas back cruising. And then it was the Ferrari. Yeah. And you're just like, I, I. It's just an endless fecal <laughs> festival, man. Yeah. It was just. It, it, was, it was fantastic in the respect that I had no idea. I, I, I could not tell who had an advantage, who didn't who was going to be there in the end. And I think endurance racing is just the perfect venue for this hypercar class or perfect series for these hypercars because, like, time is the great equalizer. And even if somebody's really fast, you're like, they might not be there in the end. Right. You know, and that's what happened to Toyota. Yep. So. Well, and and one thing I do want to say, too, is, like, I, I have been a – I have been banging my spoon on my high chair for many years about <laughs> BOPs. That's a great I, saying. <laughs> I hate BOP, right? Can't yeah. stand it. Yeah. I don't know what BOP happened 
for hypercars? I have no idea. You know something happened, right? I mean, they do a little bit of BOP, although I never really hear about it in, like, news articles or anything. I, but my point is, it didn't, as far as I'm concerned, for this race, it didn't affect it. Yeah. Which was fantastic, because it's pretty pretty common where any any given race in endurance racing, it could be six hours of spa, it could be Sebring, it could be, it, it doesn't matter where they go, right? Like, you all of a sudden you see BOP and you're like, oh, okay, the Corvette's winning the GT class. Yeah. And it like it's just yep that's clear okay Ford they decided Ford needed to get a win here, it, this time credit to the FIA this is the only time you're ever gonna hear me say it because I'm not too keen on them. <laughs> credit to them whatever BOP they did was so subtle or at least so correct that I I felt like at any given moment a six to seven teams had a legitimate shot. Yeah. at winning this race. Yeah, and it changed depending on the conditions. Yeah. Like like when it was raining, and that's the other thing with the rain, you know, or even I the ho- beginning I of the race. Lamar rains every year, man. It like, always I, does. It, it there's No, that, but I mean like proper this is yeah. we haven't seen this. Oh yeah, this was like downpours. But uh even the first lap when the caddy went into the wall, I was yeah. just like, "Oh god." Yeah. And I can't believe he got that thing back around. I don't that was a big hit, too. Yeah, that happened a lot. There were a lot of cars that had major damage, and they made it back to the yeah. pits, which is amazing. Formula One car would not have. No. <laughs> they, but, would have, they would have hit the gravel trap for like three seconds, gotten a stone in the brake duct, yeah. and called it a night. But that's what just makes endurance racing. I'm just This is going to be one big ad for endurance racing and Le Mans in general, but I love endurance racing because you could be 12 hours into a race and somebody looks really good, it means nothing. Nothing. Yeah, absolutely nothing, yeah. And it's just it's just a big chess match. Although, to be fair, in this race, because there were so many players in the GTP, it's like, okay, once you're out, like, down pretty bad, you're kind of down because there's a lot of other guys that are going to capitalize on that. And that's eventually what you saw in the end. But, man, they were pushing, and they were battling, and it was just fantastic well, to watch. And and one thing I want to say too to to any individuals that don't watch endurance racing because oh I can't I can't I can't be bothered to watch 24 hours straight of racing. I we've been there. We've we've watched 24 hours straight of racing. We've done like that's a thing, right? You can just as easily as I do now sit down, watch 2 hours, go do something. Yeah. Come back, watch another 3 hours, go do something. Watch 30 minutes, go do something. Next thing you know, you've accumulated 6, 12 hours, something like that, over the course of the 24 hours that the race is going on. And you can get a full feel for the race. You can get a full feel for the couple of hours that you're watching. You can treat each segment that you are watching as its own individual race and be just as entertained. Like, the great thing about endurance racing is that while you don't necessarily get an end result, it's just as easy to pick up and put down. Yeah. It's as, really easy to get anything. into. Yeah, you just kind of tune in and you watch it. Like, do not be afraid to just start watching an endurance race. And then don't be afraid to walk away either. Because I, I feel like a lot of people, they get scared away from the commitment of, I need to watch all six hours of this race because if I don't, then I don't know what happened. It's like, no, just do Some, like, Sometimes I won't even watch. Like, I actually really enjoy... Uh, like typically I always leave before the end of Sebring or Daytona, um, because I just want to get home sometimes, you know, and I've always liked going home and watching the end of the race for Sebring. 
Yeah. But on my way home, I'll put on Radio Lamal, which, by the way, if you want to enhance your endurance racing uh, entertainment, yes. you mute the TV and you put on Radio Lamal. Agreed. And it's much, much, much better. Agreed. Um, but I, it's like a podcast. You they, know, have, they have that Scottish guy, right? That does yeah, that. yeah, yeah. What's it? I, I forget. I can't remember his name either. But Great. He's, he does everything. Yeah, yeah. Uh, sports car racing, and uh, but it's almost like listening to a podcast because those guys they gel really well together, and they'll just have conversations. Like they would actually talk about the safety car. They're like, yeah, I don't really think this is the way to go, or you know, it's caused this problem, or like this car has been. They talk about stuff. It's not just like, oh, so and so just went wide in this corner, and so and so's got like that. It's not. Com- you can't watch it like that. It's not commentary. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. It's more just like a podcast, and you're just you're hanging out or like a live stream almost. Yeah. yeah. But I, I just I want to say that is to to people that don't that are scared away sounds make makes it sound worse than it is because you're not you may not, you're not scared obviously but just you're turned away from the idea of watching an endurance race because you feel like you need to watch all six hours. You don't need to watch all six hours or all 24 hours or all 12 hours, whatever it may be. Yeah. Just tune in for a little bit and tune out whenever you're done. Yeah, throw and it on in the it's, background. It's a lot of fun to just, yeah. like... I, I love coming back and being like, oh, who? where's everybody at? And you're like, oh, wow, look, Porsche dropped yeah, down. Yeah, what happened? You know, yeah. something happened. Okay, you'll watch for a little bit, get the feel for where everybody's at, and be like, okay, looks like... Uh, you know, the Ferraris had a pit stop problem, and uh, they're back behind the Toyotas. You're like, okay, mentally, that's if, where they're at. I'm going to go do this thing I wanted to do now. The one thing I will say is, if you can, do watch the last hour. Whatever yeah. it is, just watch the last hour. Because the Man. last the last hour is high stress, yeah, <laughs> high chaos. Like, things are happening. And generally speaking, the coverage always does a really good job of filling you in as to what you may have missed. Yeah, over what the course led of to whatever yeah. situation is so, now unfolding. Generally speaking, try to watch the last hour if you can. But if you can't, whatever. Yeah. Like, uh, that's that's what makes endurance racing so much fun, because you're just like, eh, well, whatever. Yeah. You can tune in whatever, tune out whenever. It's yep. still happening. Just watch the timing, listen to the radio. But, man, that last hour was genuinely tense, though. Yeah. I was... I had a hard time watching the last couple laps. I, I, am, I was getting flashbacks to Toyota stopping on the last lap. I was like, I was like, please, Ferrari. I will still forever be spoiled by what? Was, what was that? Twenty? I think thirteen, fourteen. I want to say it was twenty eighteen. I think was it I'm really that? Sure. Re- no, it was not that. Yeah, recent. yeah, yeah. Was it really? I'm pretty sure. I guess that's not that recent anymore. <laughs> yeah, you'd be. Yeah, yeah. The whole uh, pandemic thing, like you lose two years mentally. But uh, I still remember exactly where I was watching that race. So the, the I was listening to it and to, just absolute I, heartbroken. I, oh, I was loving life. <laughs> so <laughs> Porsche was following Toyota. Toyota was finally going to be the first Japanese manufacturer to win Le Mans since what was it, nineteen eighty seven? Yeah, the seven eight seven. Yeah, the seven, and they won in eighty seven. I think it right? might have been nineties. Did they win in the 90s? Whatever. So. It doesn't matter. But anyway, since the 787 had won, um, which would make them the, the second ever Japanese. Yeah, big deal. Yeah, it was it was a really big deal. And they had a engine failure? Or was it a hybrid failure? Um, I don't remember exactly what it was. So, it was basically a glitch because they got it going again. Yeah, but it allowed Porsche to pass them on the final lap, like within the final couple of corners. Just... To win Le Mans. Unbelievable. 24 hours, like 23 hours 
It was really 24 hours. It was already 24 hours. The, the time it ticked over, they're finishing their final lap. Yeah. So you've exceeded now your 24-hour time limit, and they lost. <sighs> and it and it was incredible because Porsche won. Yeah. <laughs> but no. But I, that I, happened. Now was the an opposite situation. So Toyota, and it was unfortunate. We were literally going to have a shootout in the last hour between Ferrari and Toyota because. Uh, the Toyota had more pace than the Ferrari, it seemed. I don't know. Maybe once, if it get, did come down to a fight, maybe the Ferrari would have tuned. Uh, they still look squirrely, man. The they Ferraris, are squirrely. They, they are yeah. all over. <laughs> they, are, they really are. But uh, they're quick. I mean, they got pole, yeah. and they they seem to have the pace, but uh, Toyota had the race pace, and they were gaining ground on the Ferrari. And I thought to myself, like, Toyota's got this. They're going to come back. Unless Ferrari's got something in the bag here, um, it's over. And uh, that was like the last hour. And then they put, uh, I think it was uh, Hirokawa. I don't remember. His, I'm probably screwing up his name. Uh, but he got in the car, in the Toyota. And it it's like out of a book. It's like the previous driver comes on the radio when he was still uh, in the last part of his stint. He's like, hey, warn the next driver that, you know, the rear brakes are locking in so-and-so corner. Or watch out for that kind of thing. Guess what happens when he gets in the car? Locks the rear brakes, brushes the wall. They got to get a new nose. Completely ruins their chances of catching the Ferrari. And which you'd think in that kind of race where you're just like, oh, man, there goes the fight. Man, <laughs> the last 45 minutes were so stressful to watch. Yeah. Because you just know, you're just like, that car could stop at any time for any reason and you're just like watching it. You're just like, well, that's what makes every so great. Yeah, every lap, you're like, okay, it's still going, it's still going. <laughs> and it's different yeah. than tracks like Daytona for some reason. I think because the lap is so long that, like Daytona, you're like, okay, yeah, he's just going around and around and around and around. If he's got a problem, he just comes to the pits, comes out. Yeah, Lamal's like, if you got a problem, it's a big problem. Oh yeah, the pits are very far away. Yes. Um, and it's just man, it was tense. And then in the pits, the Ferrari came in for its last pit stop and they'd had a problem previously the car would not refire after the pit stop and then it comes in for its last one and the same problem happens and i was i literally stood up off the couch i'm like no no (laughs) and they're like going the you could see the the engineer on the pit wall telling him what to do going through the process i remember thinking about the time like dude that dude that engineer on the pit wall is a legend because he looks super calm and collected. He's like, all right, push this button, that button, then this button. Now do this. Now do that. All right, it should fire up. Like, you could tell that's yeah. what was going on. Yeah. And I, the driver must have been. That's why he's working for yeah, Ferrari exactly. at Le Mans right now. But yes. if you were the driver in that car, you would be sweating bullets. Oh, yeah, of course. Uh, last pit stop, you're just like, please fire up, please fire up, please fire up. And then it did, went off, and uh, luckily they didn't have any problems. But, man, that moment was tense. Yes. <laughs> But that's always that's the last hour of Le Mans every year is tense. Uh, yeah, it's just intense. And then when it's finally over, you, you just it's this like release, and you're just like, it really is. Wow, it, it, that's a great way to describe it. It's a release. Yeah, yeah. You're not like super excited. You're just like, wow. After all that, here's the outcome. Yeah. So much happened. Right. And especially in the top category, I mean, there was plenty of stuff happening in GT and the the LMP twos, which were basically um, road hazards. Um, <laughs> traffic I, I mean i'm probably being a little bit harsh but like i'm not gonna lie i f- 
feel like at least of the incidents that I saw watching the race, the LMP2s are like a menace to what, society. Didn't, didn't one of, <laughs> didn't one of them smoke the 911? Yes. Smoke Smoked the 911. Yeah, and uh it just that every was early on too. Yeah, and like just all the time, you'd be like, oh, we got an incident. It's like, oh, an LMP2 just crashed in the wall, came back onto the track, hit that guy, and you're just like, oh, my God. Well, and I, I have a vague memory last year of us like it, sitting back and watching and going, actually, the LMP2s were kind of good. Yeah. I, I don't know what happened this year, but they were just flying <laughs> off in every direction all yeah. the time. And it reminded me, I remember watching Sebring one year, or it, the combination of Sebring and Daytona back when we had the PC cars, the Orcas, mm-hmm. and thinking the same thing. There'd be an incident, and you're just like, up, oh, PC car ran into somebody, yep. or he's off the track, stuck, yep. you know? And that's that's what it reminded me of. So, And I remember thinking at the time, she's like, what an absolute menace. They're just flying off everywhere. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but, uh, but yeah, there was just stuff going on the whole time, on a large scale, obviously. But just so epic. The, the venue's epic. The history's epic. And to have Ferrari win was just like... Chef's kiss. Like I don't care who you are. Yeah. Ferrari winning Le Mans for the centennial race is just like you said, Chef's kiss. Yep. That's like storybook stuff. Especially in this is their first year back. Right. In the top tier of endurance yep. racing. They haven't won since nineteen sixty five with the two fifty LM. Yeah. It's just like Yeah, it was fifty one years, wasn't it? Yeah. Like or, yeah. Yeah. Or I get it would be What's sixty five? To... Yeah, but I thought they said it was fifty one years. Well, they they raced. They used to have like the three 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 SP, uh, right? And uh, they had. I think that was the last uh, endurance car that they raced. You know, the V twelve. I don't know what year they. Th- that was. I like don't know 80s. what year they last won. I just remember them saying in the broadcast fifty one. Yeah, years. F- fifty years since they raced in the top category, but since they won Le Mans was nineteen sixty five overall. Okay. So huge historic moment. Uh, for motorsports and just for the most iconic brand coming back, and it's also just nice to see Ferrari get a win. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. I mean, anybody was... who watches Formula One right. to see that's just like, oh, yes, good, good yeah. job, Ferrari. Yeah, good for you guys. Yeah. Uh, and I saw some funny memes actually. It was like Ferrari's updates for uh, Canada, and it was a picture of the 499P. <laughs> <laughs> Probably be faster. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just an absolutely epic race and it yes. was just it i don't you can't get the same experience going back and watching it so if you did watch it you got the experience 100 percent, yeah yeah don't don't go back and it's too late it. yeah yeah just watch the highlights especially if you know. you've just listened to this podcast <laughs> we've given it all away at this point yeah but uh yeah any other thoughts on lamal i feel like yeah. i'm just gonna end up saying the same thing over yeah, and over no, again I, so no, i think you nailed it yeah and uh, it was also nice to see in the gt class the uh Oh, actually, no, there's, well, first of all, in the GT class, uh, the Rexy car. Yes. The Project 1AO car with the T-Rex livery. Yep. That was leading for quite a while. Yeah. Which was awesome. Yep. Uh, Best looking car on the grid. Yeah. And just, like, fan favorite, obviously. Uh, And then we have to talk about the NASCAR. (laughs) I, to to be honest with you, I didn't even notice it. (laughs) Um, Well, first of all, it's hilarious that it ended up being faster than the GTE cars. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, they were originally going to qualify it like they had planned that it was going to start the race behind the GTE cars, and then in qualifying, it was like way faster, so it actually started ahead of them. Just because of how fast it was down the mole sand? I think that's mostly what it was. Um, 
but uh, I mean, it's still pretty funny. But I just loved the social media reaction and overall reaction to having. NASCAR I did see a there. lot of memes oh, of it just being so gigantic. Like clearly, they had. Oh, yeah, it was like a picture car. picture of the grid, and like everything's super low to the ground. And then there's this Camaro yes. sticking out. That and a lot of uh, uh, flybys. Uh, with the Freebird song, the, the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> and just like the posts are always like, it's just like, rah! And it's like American flags and eagles everywhere. That's awesome. And uh, <laughs> there's this one onboard shot, again, with the Freebird song, where it's passing an LMP2 car down the straightaway, <laughs> which is just hilarious. And uh, they got to the finish. Um, they were never really... Well, I shouldn't say never, but they, it was going to be hard for them to actually beat any of the GTE cars because uh, the way the car is designed, they would have had to take a much longer pit stop to change the brakes um, and stuff like that, which does have to happen in a 24-hour race. And then at the end, they had a uh, transmission problem that they were able to solve, luckily, but uh, that sort of took them out of any kind of serious contention in the GTEs. But um, yeah, just awesome to see. It's like... I, I don't know how to explain it, but sometimes, you know, when I you love like the dichotomy between like high performance vehicles and just raw power. Yeah, exactly. It, it reminded me of like, remember back when you used to play Forza 4? Yeah, and, that, that, that's immediately what I and thought. And you of, wanted yeah. to drive a NASCAR in the R3 uh, racing category. And so what you did was put drag slicks on it and yeah. it was a bullet down the straight. Yes. And <laughs> useless in the corners. Yeah, yeah. That's what it looked like. Um, Except this car actually looked pretty good in the corners, but I'm sure it wasn't as good as like a proper GTE car. Um, but just, it's one of those things that like, sometimes when you look back in history, you look at the circumstance or the situation or the context of something, you go, wow, that could never, like imagine all those things came together, like that would never happen again. Yeah. And it's like, I feel like that's what this race was. Yeah. You know, we had all these GTPs, um, just huge competition, Peugeot in the mix, Ferrari ends up with the win, beating the the reigning champs Toyota who were on a streak and it's just like the GTE action the cool liveries the NASCAR yeah all of it's just like mm, that was that yep. was exactly what anyone who was a fan of endurance racing could have hoped for yep for Le Mans yep Le Mans delivered again yeah so it kind of sucks for the rest of the season because I for as far as the WEC EC is concerned I feel like most people are just like all right there's other races peace out what are you talking about <laughs> exactly <laughs> I've never watched any of the other races. What other races? I did hear they're bringing back. Um, well, I think they've got Fuji and some other one that I don't remember. But they're only they're this typical six hour races. Yeah, it it really doesn't matter. Yeah, they're just not significant enough for me to tune in. Yeah, I think the race minimum should be at least twelve hours or ten hours or something. I th- I just think six hours. It's like not enough. It's like not enough to get into. This is gonna sound. This is a hilarious. Uh, it's it's too much and not enough at the same time. Exactly. I, I really like that IMSA does those two and a half hours or four hours. Yeah. If or, it's gonna be you know. short, just keep it short. Yeah. But it reminds me of uh, in school when you. I don't know if you've ever had uh, one of those really short classes that was like you have it more times a week, but it was really short. Oh, and then like sometimes, forty-five minutes or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. And then there's some classes where you'd be in there for two hours. Yeah. And it, you had them once a week, yeah. Yeah. It was always funny to me because the really short classes, the whole time I was like, oh, is this over yet? Is this over yet? The two-hour classes, you're just like, oh, I'm going to be here a while. Let's settle in. Yep. And it goes by like that. Yeah. And that's kind of where those races are. It's like six hours is just kind of like you can't really get into it. And so right. it's like. Totally man. agree. Yeah. 
But um, I'm not a fan of him. Yeah. But anyway, we'll leave it there for Le Mans. Absolutely epic race. Yeah. Really I excited agree for the future of uh, the hypercar class and the GTP class. I just hope they can deliver again next year. I, I, I don't see how they don't because they'll have even more manufacturers. Right. Exactly. So it's just going to get Lamborghini. Yeah. <laughs> pretty soon. And it's funny. We, in the past, we've always talked about how exciting the GTE races are. Yeah. GT races in right. general. This year, you hardly saw any coverage I of the GTs. I didn't care, to be honest with you. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just all about the hypercars, which is how it should be. And it's Correct. like, good job, FIA. You re- rarely hear Easy us now. say that. Easy now. But they delivered in this yep. case. So. Yep. Okay. Yep, credit to him. Pass. Um, but yeah. So, anything else you want to add before we wrap up? I've got nothing in particular now. All right. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening. If you've made it this far, if you'd like to follow us on social media, it's Motorsports and Focus on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Otherwise, thanks for listening. See you next week.